Welcome to the Cutting the Gordian Knot podcast. Today we have Wade Tisthammer on the show. He's going to be talking to us about the eternal society paradox. It's um, his, I think, pretty interesting way of uh, trying to show the finitude of the past. He has a site called Maverick Christian with a corresponding YouTube channel with a bunch of episodes. Um, Wade, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. So um, the first thing I wanted to hit is a bit of a survey of some of the other arguments out there. I think there's some which are better, some that are worse. Um, and obviously, I invited you here because I, I think that yours legitimately is one of the best. There's a few features in yours, which I think are pretty neat, um, which I'm sure we'll get to. Um, but yeah, what, what's, what's the current state of, of arguments? What are some common ones which are viewed as generally strong? Which are the accepted ones in, the, uh, in this field? Oh my gosh, there are a lot of them out there. Uh, one, so one that um, I was familiar with uh, what is uh, one that uses illustrations of Hilbert's Hotel, a hotel with infinitely ruins, and noting uh, how one can allegedly get absurd results with uh, such a hotel, like the hotel being full, but with a hotel guest moving into rooms twice the original number, the hotel ha then has vacancy for infinitely made guests to arrive. Uh, so William Lane Craig is famous for using arguments from Hilbert's Hotel, but I hadn't found them particularly convincing. Uh, better arguments and kind of the more recent ones uh, borrow inspiration from the Grim Reaper paradox. Uh, the Grim Reaper paradox is often credited Hosey Benedetti, though it was David Chalmers that actually created the paradox. Uh, Chalmers was inspired by similar paradoxes from Benedetti, so he kind of gets credit by proxy. Uh, so that paradox, that, as Chalmers wrote in 2002, goes as follows. There are contemplably many Grim Reapers, one for every positive integer. Grim Reaper 1 is disposed to kill you with a side that 1 p.m. if and only if you are still alive then. Otherwise, the scythe remains immobile throughout, taking 30 minutes to do it. Grim Reaper 2 is disposed to kill you with a side at 12.30 p.m. If and only if you're still alive then, taking 15 minutes about it. Grim Reaper 3 is disposed to kill you with a side at 12.15 p.m. and so on. If you're still alive just before 12 p.m., you can only die through the motion of Grim Reaper's side, and once you're dead, you stay dead. On the face of it, this situation seems conceivable. Each Reaper seems conceivable individually intrinsically, and it seems reasonable to combine distinct individuals with distinct intrinsic properties into one situation. The little reflection reveals that this situation is described as contradictory. I cannot survive to any moment past 12 p.m. Grim Reaper would get me first, but I cannot be killed. For Grim Reaper N to kill me, I must have survived Grim Reaper N plus one, which is impossible. Now, there are a lot of paradox, there are a lot of arguments in favor of a finite past that use this type of reasoning and one that i found particularly good uh was one that uh, alexander proust made he published in his blog in 2009 i found about about it a couple years after that it's the same one i cite in my eternal society paradox paper yeah <laughs> you know i i think it's interesting you bring up that one that's one that um well i never really liked and the, the main reason was because it seemed to be con uh, constantly dividing out time and then that leaves it open to the counter. Well, what if time is not infinitely divisible? I mean, there's idea space is not, you know, with Planck's constant and whatnot. So I, I liked that he did an up version at some point where he actually placed these green reapers on, I think, either days or years, which stretched into the past. I thought there was a big upgrade. Yeah, there, there are lots of others like that that involve Grim Reaper style arguments. Yeah. And, and the Hilbert's Hotel, I, I got to think about that one more. Um, I agree that there's some things which are very strange 
which happened with this hotel. Like that's, you know, no negotiation, you know, no, um, no problem with that. However, I don't think that they're necessarily irrational. They do seem to fit with what we know about just the nature of infinity as a number. And I guess if we actually had that type of hotel with infinite rooms, that seems to be um, the kind of weird jiggering guests around that we could actually do so so i wonder if that one is is a strong counter example and, and then you have to do a little bit of um philosophical work to actually fit that one in i'm sure you know craig does this you know pretty well how do you fit that into explaining that the past is finite there's there's a few steps that need to be defended there um i say all this not because i i'm actually taking one side or the nut or another um i may have told you uh, by email already that I changed my mind four times in one day last Tuesday while thinking over this about whether or not the um, the arguments for a finite past were successful. Um, I would I don't think I could place a bet right now at this precise moment. I'm like 55 45 in favor of a finite past actually being able to to be proven. Um, but yeah, did you have any other, um, comments about the, um, uh, other arguments that are out there? Oh, well, I just wanted to say that what actually convinced me that Hilbert's hotel was probably impossible was Proust's argument, uh, that used the Hilbert's hotel or each room in Hilbert's hotel has a Grim Reaper factory. And then you oh. have infinitely many Grim Reapers and then, uh, Grim Reaper N, you know, like say Grim Reaper, Grim Reaper one is in room number one, Grim Reaper two is two number two. Uh, sets sets their alarms accordingly, kind of in alliance with the Grim Reaper paradox. <clears throat> so, for example, uh, Grim Reaper 2 checks on an individual at one half minute, and structured that way, you get the Grim Reaper paradox. So it's, you could argue that if Hilbert's Hotel were possible, the Grim Reaper paradox could happen. But the Grim Reaper paradox can't happen, and therefore Hilbert's Hotel is impossible. Ooh, that's interesting. You know, I, I actually have not seen that cool um, mashup combo um, argument. I'm going to have to check that out. Yeah, um, that, that's what really that convinced me that Hilbert's Hotel was probably impossible. And then you get differing intuitions like, well, maybe time isn't infinitely divisible, but that seems like really ad hoc. I mean, if you could have an infinite past spread out for like an infinite time span, it seems really ad hoc to say, oh, yeah, but you can't have an infinite temp sequence of events in a finite time span. Uh, and it's people's intuitions to vary on that, but that one convinced me. It's like, yeah, I think it probably is metaphysically impossible for uh, an actual infinite of that sort to exist. Right. Yeah, that kind of gives off some Zeno's paradox vibes with the you know dividing the next step that one takes in half and never reaching the the destination. I, I could see somebody um, trying to make a distinction between an actual in infinite and only a potential infinite. Um, kind of like the way that you would apply that to Zeno to this saying, well, no, he's actually just talking about this mathematical operation whereby we always add a number <laughs> and not actually describing a real, actually instantiated set. I mean, I don't, I, <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm speaking as somebody who's, who's not sure about either side, but um, that seems to be something that might be brought up. I, I don't know if you've heard anything similar. Uh, I mean, it wouldn't do anything to stop the Grim Reaper paradox from being self-contradictory. Okay. All right. Explain that out a little bit. Uh, the Grim Reaper paradox? Uh, sure. And what, why we, we wouldn't have that contradiction. <clears throat> okay. So the Grim Reaper paradox, I thought I explained it before, but 
<coughs> or um, explain the one with um, with uh, Hilbert's Hotel. So, so that's the one that I, I haven't heard before anyway. That um, so um, we we have the hotel with infinitely many rooms, and then he adds these Grim Reapers in. I was a little unclear about how that oh, okay. uh, how that argument actually functions. So, if you want to just lay that one out, okay. Well, it's basically that uh, you know, if Hilbert's Hotel were possible, each room in it could be a factory in which a Grim Reaper is produced, and with infinitely many Grim Reapers, you could have Grim Reaper paradox. So, for example, each Grim Reaper in room N checking on the individual at 11 a.m. plus one over n minutes. So, for example, Grim Reaper 2 checks on the individual at 11 a.m. plus one half a minute. Grim Reaper number 3 checks on the individual at 11 a.m. plus one third of a minute, and so forth. And then you get the Grim Reaper paradox that way. Gotcha. Okay, gotcha. Well, let's um, well, let's transition to the argument um, at hand, which is your own. Um, so, so describe how exactly you lay out yours. <clears throat> oh, Sure. So in the paper, the Eternal Society is a society that existed for a beginningless infinite duration of time and has the abilities of ordinary humans in each year of existence. Uh, so in each year, people in the society can flip coins, make decisions based on coin flip results, write books, sing songs, and pass on information containing the current year to the next year. Because of the society's extremely modest ability, it seems like the Eternal Society would be possible if an infinite past were possible. And by possible, I'm referring to a metaphysical possibility, as opposed to, for example, metaphysical possibility. Now imagine Turtle Society has the following annual coin flipping tradition. Each year they flip a coin, it becomes up heads, and they all get together to do a particular chant, but only if they never did that chant before. If the coin does not come up heads, they do not do the chant for that year. That's basically the initial setup, the annual coin flipping tradition. Now, the coins are probabilistically independent events, so any particular infinite permutation of coin flips is equally possible. Now, so consider scenario S1, in which a coin comes up heads for the first time last year. So the Eternal Society gets together and do the chant for the first time. This seems like it would be possible if an infinite past were possible. Eternal Society with the abilities of ordinary humans, uh, by which I mean the society has the ability of ordinary humans in each of existence, could surely do something like this. But this scenario is actually not possible. So the coin flips are probabilistically independent events. So if scenario S1 were possible, then another scenario that we can call scenario S2 would also be possible. In this scenario, scenario S2, the coin came up heads each of the infinite past. Now if the coin came up heads each year, did the Eternal Society ever do the chant? Well, they had to have done the chant some year because they would have done the chant last year if they had done it, yes, since the coin came up heads last year. You did any of you point to, uh, there is a prior year in which they would have done the chant if they had not done the chant before. So they had to have done the chant since the coin came up heads last year, yet they could not have done the chant. There is no year they could have done it. So this scenario creates a logical contradiction. So although scenario S1, the first one, is not directly self-contradictory, scenario S2 is impossible, scenario S1 is impossible because it implies the possibility of a logical contradiction by scenario S2. So the Eternal Society argument against an infinite past goes like this. Premise 1. If an infinite past were possible, an Eternal Society would be possible. Premise 2. If an Eternal Society would be possible, then scenario S1 would be possible. That's where the coin comes up heads for the first time last year. Right. Premise 3. If scenario S1 would be possible, then scenario S2 would be possible, where the coin come up, comes up heads each year. Premise 4. Scenario S2 is not possible. Conclusion. Therefore, an infinite past is not possible. <clears throat> and that's basically the argument. Nice, nice. No, I think that's a neat argument. I, I like the uh, use of the uh, coin flips because um, we're actually placing on each one of these years, which are discrete you know, uh, parts of time, a probabilistically independent event. I think that's a really cool move. Um, so what are some critiques that others have launched against your argument? What are some common ones? Wh which premise do they attack most? 
Well, what's funny enough is that uh, the two most common critiques I found uh, don't actually attack any premise of the argument. Um, okay. But okay. one has to mind that the Eternal Society argument, as far as I can tell anyway, isn't widely discussed. The argument was published in a, in a philosophy journal for undergraduate students, so it's not going to get a lot of recognition outside of astute Catholic podcasters. <laughs> uh, with that in mind, there have been a couple objections. So one of them was by Jimmy Atkin. At least I think that's how you pronounce his last name. Right. Aiken. Yep. Aiken. Okay. <clears throat> now, he wrote an article that discussed various arguments for the finitude of the past that included mine involving the Eternal Society paradox. Uh, he said that the solution to the paradox is straightforward. The eternal society paradox is presupposing a logical contradiction. And to that I say, how is that a solution? The fact the eternal society paradox in scenario S2 entails a logical contradiction is part of the point. It's not a solution to simply concede part of the claim. However, he later says the paradox presupposes the uh, first and last element to a supposedly infinite series. So the eternal society paradox commits what he calls uh, the first and last fallacy. He describes that uh, fallacy as this way. First and last fallacy occurs if and only if a person envisions a supposedly infinite series as having both a first and last element. Uh, the problem is, is that I didn't envision that, and neither did Scenario S2. Need part of the reason there's a contradiction that the scenario, if anything, envisions that there is no first element. <laughs> so another problem with the objection is that eternal society argument is logically valid. So if the argument doesn't sound, which premise is false? Like I mentioned, this doesn't really attack any premise of the argument. And unfortunately, I've seen that happen a lot online, is that when we're faced with a logically valid argument, Somebody makes an objection that doesn't attack the truth or justification of any premise of the argument. But an objection can give the illusion of being a substantive rebuttal by saying something plausibly true and closely related to the topic at hand uh, while still being irrelevant. As another right. objection I've, I've seen was one that uh, Delia Brown made. A, she uh, published in the same philosophy journal that published my eternal society argument. Uh, Brown presents the argument in this way, which is a bit of a straw man. <clears throat> uh, the premise, the, the argument she depicts it as is this uh p1 if an eternal society were possible this tamar's eternal society would be possible p2 this tamar's eternal society scenario results in a paradox p3 scenarios that result in a paradox cannot be possible c1 eternal past cannot be possible now one might think i'm being overly critical here of saying this is a straw man but ask yourself which scenario is she calling eternal society scenario uh well given the second or third premises here, it should obviously be scenario S2, since that's the scenario that a premise the Eternal Society argument claims is not possible. Uh, and yet she says this. P2, the one that says Tistamber's Eternal Society scenario results in a paradox, is not correct, because Eternal Society scenario does not result in a paradox. The supposed paradox is that A, the society must have done the chant, but B, the society can never done the chant. While B is true, A is not the case. It is true that the society could never have performed the chant, but it is not true that the society must have performed the chant. Now, at first blush, that doesn't seem to make any sense. It's an explicit part of this scenario that for each year, if the coin comes up heads, they do the chant if they'd never done it before. So by this description, if the coin came up heads, they must have done the chant. Of course, scenario S2 is a paradox. What can prove at least through contradiction with uh, symbolic logic? And instantly, that's one object I've heard before, is that the scenario isn't self-contradictory, uh, which is ridiculous. But <laughs> I didn't see at least one person argue that. Even, gotcha. okay. even a proof didn't convince him. Uh, so is this... a is this objection that Delia Brown made a denial that scenario is too self-contradictory? Well, no, it isn't, because it turns out that the Eternal Society scenario in her paper isn't really any scenario the Eternal Society argument actually talks about. <clears throat> so she says uh, this, let us re-examine Tistamber's justification for part P of this paradox. No matter what year one points to, there's a prior in which they would have done the chant had they not done the chant before. 
a more accurate description would be that no matter which year uh, one points to, there is a prior year which they would have done the chant had they not been informed that they've done the chant before. Um, that is not more accurate. That is less accurate. But with that said, I can understand how this straw man might have emerged, and it's really my fault for not anticipating this straw that the straw man might emerge. So one has to distinguish between uh, A, scenarios S1 and S2, and B, uh, the mechanisms for how the Eternal Society might have brought about those scenarios, because they're not quite the same thing. So the Eternal Society argument proper does not specify the means for how the Eternal Society brings about those two scenarios. And completing those two scenarios the, with the way the Eternal Society might have brought about those scenarios seems to be the mistake of Julia Brown made. In the original Eternal Society Paradox paper, one possible mechanism that I proposed that the Eternal Society keeps track of whether they did the chant before, like on a web page or something. Eternal Society is capable of transmitting information from the previous year to the next year, as I mentioned before. Uh, that way, when the coin comes to bed, they consult a web page or whatever to see if they ever did the chant before. And this is a mechanism for how they engage the annual equivalent tradition of doing the chant when the coin comes up heads, but only if they never did the chant before. <coughs> and the situation where the coin comes up heads, Delia Brown proposes a uh, society has never done the chant, but it has always existed as though it had. Every year, the society has received a message that they have done the chant in the previous year, despite the fact they've never actually done it. Uh, the problem, of course, is that what Brown is describing here isn't any scenario the original paper talked about. And the message transmission scenario of the original paper, the Eternal Society had accurate information about whether they did the chant before. If you change the scenario so that they no longer had any accurate information in the way Delia Brown depicted, it's true the contradiction wouldn't arise because at that point it would no longer be scenario S2, but then you're talking about a different scenario and none of this would attack any premise of the actual Eternal Society argument. Right, um, I that think said, that's an un yeah, that's an unfair critique there. <laughs> but Okay, sorry, uh, keep on going. Yeah, we can steel man this objection. Uh, seal man basically being the opposite of a straw man, making it stronger. Mm -hmm. uh, so remember that message transmission strategy was intended to be a mechanism for the Eternal Society could use to help practice the annual coin flip tradition and what could make an objection about how successful that mechanism would be if the Eternal Society used it. Uh, so with that in mind, consider the somewhat seal man version of the objection. Although the original transmission message scenario, the information about what it did in chant before is accurate, even when the coin up came up heads each year, uh, one could argue that in reality, the Eternal Society were to try doing the annual coin flipping tradition using the message transmission system, and the coin came up heads each year. And the message that would actually be transmitted is that they did the chant even though they never did the chant before. Uh, that seems to be what Adelia Brown had in mind. Uh, now, but is this objection true? Well, not necessarily. I mean, it's easy to imagine the Eternal Society transmitting a false belief about whether they did the chant year after year, uh, but it's also easy to imagine them transmitting the correct belief from year to year. I think both are possible if the Eternal Society is possible. But let's suppose that it's somehow impossible for the Eternal Society to transmit accurate information from year one year to the next about where they did the chant before. I don't think it is impossible. So this is something humans could do in contemporary society, thus the Eternal Society would be able to do it. But suppose that it is anyway. But we can think of a different mechanism for them having the correct belief about where they did the chant in a prior year. So notice that's no part of the uh, two scenarios that the Eternal Society has a justified true belief about where they did the chant before. For all the scenarios care, their belief about where they did the chant before is true but not justified. And also note in each year whether the, either the society did the chant before or they didn't. So suppose the Eternal Society roll a couple dice each year, and if the result is an even number, they'll believe they did the chant in prior year. Otherwise, they won't believe they did the chant in prior year. In which case, it's possible the Eternal Society had the correct belief about whether they did the chant before just by chance. Now, as for why they base the belief on rolling dice outcome, maybe the Eternal Society acts this way because they have a false belief that the dice gods revealed the truth by controlling the outcome, even though the outcome is a product of random chance. At any rate, we can imagine that by chance, the results of the rolled dice happen to line up with the correct answer of whether they did the chant 
before in each year. So note that rolling dice and flip coin are probabilistically independent events. So it's possible for this scenario to have rolling dice yield correct results and for the coin to come up heads each year so that in every year the coin comes up heads and they have a correct belief about where they did the champ before. And with that, we have our mechanism for scenario S2 and we still get a contradiction. Right. Yeah, I, I think that's kind of a strange critique and that, um, you know, that kind of to summarize what it sounds like you were saying is even if they could be wrong in e any given year, their possibilities are true false. In other words, they um, we have a series kind of like we have that series of heads or tails and, and none of them is privileged. So we could say that they could have an all true sequence of being um, passing true information. So we're basically running a similar argument like you did with the uh, the coin flips earlier. Yeah, the problem with the dice one is it's a little bit more convoluted. So it's easier to say they have accurate information transmitted from year to year. Right. Or at very least, it is possible for them to do that, even if it was by dumb luck. And it's just chance because chance events can align in, in any of those possible ways. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I definitely agree that that's not a fair critique of this argument. Again, I think the argument is is very good. Um, you, you know, let's circle back a little bit to what, what Jimmy Aiken brings up. And I want you to spell out a little bit more um, how this doesn't commit the first and last fallacy. So I think we do identify a, it's fine to have one end point, right, because you could be infinite in the other direction. So we have this end point in the form of do they do the chant or not? in this year right so that's our, our end point at the end so going back it seems to be um it seems to be uh based on so they're chanting today is based on um whether or not they ever did a chant a chant before and that has to do with if heads came up for the first time so how is that first time of heads coming up not the other end point that jimmy would refer to well he, he said the first and last fallacy was assuming that an infinite series has a beginning point. And that's just, that's nowhere in any premise of the argument. Okay. But, but we're referencing, we, we have our end point, right? That's when they flip today. Well, I so mean, that, if, if there's so, a first time uh, where the coin comes up head. So the, how the uh, annual coin flip tradition works is that they do the chant only if they never did it before. So the only time they right. would do the chant is uh, the, the first year the coin comes up heads. I okay. suppose. But of course, that won't apply if the coin comes up heads each year. There is no first time. Um, right. Nonetheless, even in scenario S2, there is no part in that scenario that says there was ever a first year. And the fact, if anything, scenario S2 assumes the opposite. It's precisely because there is no first element in infinite sequence that there is a contradiction. Okay, so, so, so let's follow down that track a little bit. Um, so if we say there is no first heads, which we that if we're operating on the basis of an infinite past and it's possible to have heads all the way down forever, um, then why can't we say that there's actually not a paradox because we, we wouldn't expect a chant to ever happen. And that's that. So it's so why, why, why so we understand the one half of it, explain why, why we get the paradox. Well, uh, I have, an an art, I have uh, some uh, an article on my blog that gives a symbolic logic proof that the scenario is self-contradictory. Nice. Um, but uh, we ask ourselves, okay, did they ever do the chant given that they're practicing the annual coin flip tradition? Either they did or they didn't. If we say yes, they did right. the chant. If we say yes, they did the chant, well, either you point to there's a prior year in which they would have done the chant if they had done the chant before. So there's no year in which they could have done it. And yet, 
they had to have done the chant because the coin come up heads last year. And the rule is if the coin comes up heads, you do the chant then if you never did it before. So the scenario is still self-contradictory. And that, that's where the paradox is. The uh, There's a self-contradiction. You've, you've moved me up to 7525, man. Uh, <laughs> I gotta say, it, it's funny. I, I like when, when you try to push some of these and you're talking about the nature of infinity and these things. We're actually talking about some pretty like, I don't know, philosophical basic things. So either you're right or you just said something stupid. But I'm okay with saying stupid <laughs> stuff. So I'm going to continue. Um, so I... You know, I did look for more objections, and um, you pretty much named all the ones which commonly come up. I think we already talked about how some of them just kind of missed the mark entirely. Um, I, I think Jimmy's is out there, but I think he had a pretty good response about that. Um, has anybody um, attacked the premise that it's not possible for them to have passed the information infinitely because that would represent a – and this is kind of flipping – traditional argument on his head so they can't pass the information up every year infinitely because that represents a a finite addition of one more year of one more year to reach a an infinite end so instead we we can't actually have passed any information today if the past is infinite so we can't have that passing at all is that have you heard something like that? I haven't heard that, but even if we say that they can't pass accurate information from one year to the next, we can just modify this zero to say they roll a dice each year. And by okay. chance, the rolling dice happen to light up with a correct belief about whether they did the chant in a prior year. Okay, so you would say that even if we can't get the information from the past up to the present, then we could add on a um, a dice roll on each year where there was a coin flip. And that that would be independent of the need to get information from the year prior. Is that is that what you're saying? Yeah, because that was in response to my uh, Delia Brown's article where Delia Brown says they, that if the coin came up heads, uh, the, informa- the message that would always be transmitting would be that they always did the chant and they never did the chant before. And I could say, well, if, even if you believe that they can't accurately pass information from one year to the next, even when it's all heads. Well, consider this rolling dice strategy. Each year they roll a dice. And because uh, the these uh, events are probabilistically independent, it would be possible for the coin to come up heads each year and for the dice to come up in such a way that they have an accurate belief about whether they did the chant in the prior year. So that, in that case, you wouldn't even need information transfer from one year to the next. Okay, I, I like that one a little bit better. Um, I, I, I think the dice edition is interesting. Um, because otherwise I could, I could see someone claiming that, that that it's imagining a succession, a successive movement through an infinite time period where, whereas somebody who would believe in an infinite time might explain it differently where, whereby all movements are local. So you go from the point prior to today, today to tomorrow. And so long as everything at every point does that local movement, <coughs> then we actually have an infinite uh, an infinite past without anything having to come from all the way distant infinity up till today. Um, so I'm going to have to think about the, um, the dice edition. Um, that, that's an interesting twist. And, and that's, I think that's a, that, that can be article version two, um, the revenge of the eternal society. Um, so let's see. Let's see. Other ones are, what if we said that there's a, um, a false dilemma here and 
just like we we have things like in a super state, you know, it's not a one or um, we could have something in a state of potential. So it's not actual. It's not non-being. Why can't we just claim that um, the chant or the results of this would just be undefined or um, suspended or in a state of potential um, instead of a a strict logical paradox? Uh, Well, can what can use symbolic logic to prove quite rigorously that there is indeed a logical contradiction. Okay. So that's, that's one reason why it won't work. It's like saying, well, why can't a Mary bachelor be in a, a superposition of being undefined? Well, no, there's a real logical contradiction there. Okay. Um, but yeah, to make, just, just remember, did they do the chant before? Well, they had to have done the chant and yet they could not have done the chant. There's still a logical contradiction there. There, there can't be any undefined thing about it. It's not, not the way logic works. Okay. So you're claiming that these are these are two actualities which are opposed. It's not something that we could say is in a superstate or a wave function at all. Oh no, it's not like that. I mean, even superpositions aren't actually logical contradictions. There's no contradiction in the math of quantum mechanics. If there were, we we'd be in a lot of trouble. Right, because it's not actually one thing and actually another thing at the same time in the same way. It's something which is just potentially either. So that's kind of the question. Is this so can you kind of spell out why this can't be potentially either? I, I know you've, you've referenced the symbolic um, logic, but most people driving their car aren't, aren't going to be able to reference that. Oh, yeah. Because well, uh, remember, the rule is that uh, each year they flip a coin, the coin comes up heads. They do the chant, but only if, never, only if they never do the chant before. So they had to have done the chant by, by one rule. Namely, if it comes up heads, they do the chant, but they ne- only if they never do it before. So by that rule, they had to have done the chant. They would have done it last year. They hadn't done before. By another rule, they could not have done the chant. And that rule, is, and that is that uh, um, any year you point to, they would have done the chant had they not done the chant before because the coin come up heads in a prior year, precisely because of that rule. And because of those two things, you get a logical contradiction. Gosh darn you, Wade. This is good. This is very good. I like this a lot. Um, I'm, I'm poking and I'm finding finding solid argument everywhere I poke. I'm sure there's better pokers and better prodders of arguments, but um, I am all I have. Um, let's see. I'm running very low on ways that, that I, can, I can attack this argument, but let me lay one more out. Um, so we have, uh, we have a series of infinite years that we're imagining. Um, and then we also have um, the infinite society and they're, they're flipping these coins and whatnot. Um, could it be that because the, um, the society passes on the information, does the next um, flip, that we have a mismatch in the cardinality of, the, of these two sets? We don't have the same actual number of, um, of coin flips and, uh, and passes of information as we have years. So I, I'm trying to put this one in, in a little bit better way, but but since one is created one at a time in an infinite universe, wouldn't have a a um, like a one at a time creation. Could we have a mismatch in the total number of the sets of uh, eternal paradox um, activities and the set of years? Uh, well, no, because it would be LF null. It would be the same cardinality as the natural numbers. And like I mentioned before, you don't even need information transfer methods to control dices here. You're going a little bit quiet there. I don't know if you stepped away from the mic bit. Each coin flip, how many coin flips are there? Well, if they flip the coin each year, 
uh, then that's alf null. It's it can be mapped one-to-one -one correspondence to the natural numbers. How about information transfers? Well, assuming you're transferring one year to the next for each year, well, that's also alf null. It can be mapped onto the natural numbers. So it's the same cardinality. And remember, if push comes to shove, you don't even need information transfer. If need be, we can say they roll dice each year. And the results of the dice just happen to line up with the correct belief about where they did the champ before. Very nice. Very nice. I like that answer. Um, kind of the view that I'm starting to come to is that it would, and I'll, I'll let you reflect on this and see what you think, is that it's possible for God to have created an infinite universe. However, I think it's impossible for this universe to have been infinite, kind of in the same way that it's possible for God to have made a a universe with the speed of light, which is half the speed of light today. Um, but, you know, he, he could have done that differently, but he just did not. Therefore, the speed of light is what it is in this universe. Would you say that it's possible for God to have created an infinite universe? An actual infinite? Uh, well, an actual that, infinite, yeah. Yeah, well, the, the Hilbert's Hotel thing, conjoined with the Grammy pair for Paradox may, makes me suspect that the answer is probably not. I just think an, an actual infinite seems more likely than not to be metaphysically impossible. Okay. Okay. Um, yeah. I, I mean, there's, there's, so are there any views of time, which, um, which don't correspond to your argument at all? Um, there's different views that, uh, that people take. It seems that this would function on any of them, but I haven't given it quite enough thought. Any that would cause it trouble? Uh, not that I'm aware of. It's it doesn't specify whether we're doing like a tenseless or tense theory of time. That's completely unspecified right. by the argument. It seems like it would work either way. Yeah, I, I, that's kind of my intuition too. Um, but normally, I I kind of think through a theory. I don't know what, if you have a, a favorite position on that one. Yeah, I'm a, the tense theory of time. Right. Right. Myself. Okay. Gotcha. Whew. Well, I tell you what, you are a fast talker, my friend. So we have motored through like a ton of points. That's awesome. Um, being in the afternoon, I haven't had my uh, normal requisite uh, quantity of coffee. Um, but yeah, I, I, you make a darn good argument, my friend. Um, I really like the, uh, the the dice edition. So, so what would you say to somebody who is? Um, who's still kind of like on the edge thinking, Hey, maybe I don't understand this argument or other arguments completely. What would be your final push to kind of uh, get somebody in the right camp? Well, I guess one thing to point out is that when you're making objections, uh, answers, and, and this is a logically valid argument. So is there a premise you think is false right now? If all the premises are true, you can just say, well, the conclusion has to be true. If the premises are true, it's impossible to have true premises and a false conclusion here because this is a logically valid argument. So, I'd say, okay, is there a premise that you aren't convinced by? <clears throat> and really the only vulnerable premise I can think of is the first one. Uh, the one that says an infinite past is possible, but an internal society isn't. Uh, to which I would say, uh, surely there's something metaphysically suspicious about an infinite past from eternal society with the ability of ordinary humans can actualize a logical contradiction. It seems more plausible than an infinite past is just never possible in the first place. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. So what other kind of things do you do on your channel on Maverick Christian? Uh, mostly apologetics uh, related stuff pertaining to philosophy. Gotcha. Are, do you have a favorite argument for God? Oh, that's a good point. So for um, a while, the, the moral argument was one of my favorite arguments. Interesting. And have uh, you have you put some of those other ones into symbolic logic? 
Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's very really to put a, an argument in symbolic logic for a moral argument. So one, one version of the moral argument goes like this. If God does not exist, nothing is morally wrong. Some things are morally wrong, like torturing an infant just for fun. You know, therefore, God exists. There are variants of that sort of deductive argument. Mm -hmm. And now it's William Lane Craig has his own variety that goes very much like that. And what's interesting about our moral arguments of that sort is that an atheist might say, oh, this is a terrible argument. Really? So which premise is false? Here's the thing. Atheists do not agree about which premise is false. Because some atheists are moral nihilists. They don't believe anything is morally wrong. So I might say, well, nothing is morally wrong. Well, then if you if you agree with the, that second premise, then you are rationally committed to accepting the first premise. Uh, because uh, if you believe that you know God doesn't exist and nothing is morally wrong, then the first premise has to be probably true. That could be shown with like uh, mathematics and symbolic logic too. Uh, but if you agree with the first premise but deny the second premise, so then you're still agreeing with one of the premises. So uh, an atheist will agree that one of the premises is false, but no atheist who correctly understands uh, propositional logic and takes the first premise to be a material implication um, and knows, you know, knows logic would actually disagree with both premises. At least one of the premises would have to be plausibly true. So what do you make of um, and this is kind of going off topic, but hey, why not? Um, what do you make of uh, of uh, William Lane Craig's claim that upon creation, God entered into time? That seems plausible to me. OK, what, what exactly does he mean by that? Because I've I haven't heard him explain it in depth. And it seems um, it seems to contradict traditional ideas of um, in what respect God's eternal. Oh, so Craig, so a couple of ways. Uh, we can think of as God being eternal. Well, at least two ways. Uh, one of them that he's existed throughout an infinite duration, uh, sympaternal. And because of the eternal society paradox, I I'm inclined to believe that's probably not the case because, I mean, if eternal society could bring about a contradiction with ordinary human abilities, uh, surely God would be able to do the same thing. Uh, another idea is that God is timeless, that he's just outside of time altogether. Now, outside of time, there is no change, only being or non-being. And... Uh, but you can actually kind of combine the two. You can say that um, without creation, God is timeless. But um, at the at t equals zero, at the moment of creation, then he sort of, quote unquote, enters into time. But he's ontologically prior to creation. Uh, that is, uh, our creation depends on its existence upon God. God is kind of the originating cause. But outside of, outside of creation, without it, uh, God is timeless. And in that sense, he's eternal. So gotcha. It's a bit tricky to wrap your your head around because it's it's not people aren't normally accustomed to think it that way. But I, I think that is the most likely um, scenario for how God and creation are related to each other. How God is eternal. Yeah, I, I mean it. it it's going to take a, you know my my gut reaction is no. I'm sticking with my man Boethius's classic definition of you know what is it the simultaneous and immediate. Um, uh, possession of of all moments or something like that. Oh yeah, that's that's um, a view that God is timeless. Period. Right. Yep. Yep. But that I'm would that would involve that a tenseless view of time, though. Right. Okay. Yep. Yep. Um, man, we we got a we got a huge amount covered. I'm I'm quite impressed. We're we're only <laughs> like forty minutes in. I thought it would take longer to to lay out that argument. Um, I hope people caught that. My goodness, you uh. You are a uh, fast-talking philosopher indeed, um, and you're also a, uh, a software engineer, as I understand it. Yeah, a software over trade. I'm a part-time grad student in philosophy. Gotcha. And what's your, uh, what are you working on right now? Is this still the, uh, the topic, or have you switched something else? Um, 
working on what exactly? So are you still working on um, these boxes or for your dissertation, are you studying something else? Uh, well, dissertations are more for like PhD students. I'm a master's student right now. Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you were a PhD student. Gotcha. I wish I was. I really <laughs> wish I was. <laughs> oh, jump right in, man. You could do it. Gotcha. Gotcha. Well, let's see. Um, well, wait, do you have anything else that you'd like to add? Oh, well, there are lots of other objections we could do. Um, one Ooh, thing. Okay. I, th I thought we were running low. Uh, give me another huh. objection. All right. Uh, so one is that I've seen online that's related to Grim Reaper style paradox involves the uh, unsatisfiable paradiagnosis. Okay. I don't know if you've run into that, but uh, the unsatisfiable paradiagnosis is a term that philosopher Nicholas Shackle coined. Uh, roughly, the idea is that the abstract structure of something like the Grimmiever paradox is such that it produces a contradiction. Mm -hmm. So one could make this objection, and there are there have been similar objections to Grimmiever cell paradoxes like that. Uh, the, the reason that the eternal society paradox is impossible is not because an infinite past is impossible, but because the eternal society's paradox instantiates the unsatisfied paradox diagnosis, namely it's a contradiction. And my problem with that is that it doesn't really attack any premise of the argument because I mean, it's true. Yeah, isn't that the whole point that it's trying to illuminate a a contradiction? Yeah, you could say it's like it because when you say that, well, the reason that it, that this type of paradox is possible is not because if it past possible because the general society paradox instantiates or something like it instantiates it, but it's like okay, that's true. Well, that response doesn't target any specific premise. Right, I, I think that that's actually an admission that if it indeed as a set of premises is impossible then that means that the argument goes through because it seeks to show that these things are impossible and yeah that seems like an admission that you're right not a critique yeah and so okay. the idea is that if an infinite past were possible then such and such would be possible and it doesn't really that unsatisfiable paradiagnosis doesn't really target that type of reasoning yeah yeah, I'm not a fan of that one. All right, what, what are some more ones? Tougher ones. <laughs> okay. The other so, side of fair shake. So one of the things is that, so better objections are those that actually attack a specific premise, actually attack the reasoning at hand. Right. Uh, so one, one could disagree with the second premise. Say the internal society is possible, but they couldn't engage the annual coin flip tradition to bring about scenario S1 because uh, practicing that tradition could create a contradiction by having the coin come up heads each year. Uh, but given the aforementioned abilities, the eternal society... You know, they can, by definition, each year flip coins, make decisions based on coin flip results and so forth. That doesn't strike me as plausible. I mean, after Agreed. all, what would what, what happen if each year they try to flip a coin and do the chant where the coin comes up heads with the added condition that they don't do the chant if they did it in prior year? So presumably there are no gods of metaphysical possibility that would smite them with lightning if they ever tried to do that. Sure. Uh, and I don't see any, like, um, anything about that individual year that would separate it from, say, the year that we're in today where people can can flip coins. There's nothing about the the enumeration of that year which would make coin flipping impossible. So, yeah, I agree. that That's not a great critique of it. Uh, so another one is to attack the, the third premise. Say that uh, scenarios S1 and S2, say that scenario S1 is possible where the coin comes up head mm -hmm. last year, but scenario S2 is impossible. Um, I don't think that works because... Those two scenarios are the same apart from the outcome of random experiment, namely the results of an infinite sequence of coin flips. So if one is possible, then so is the other. Uh, to illustrate the principle with a different pair of scenarios, suppose we have a scenario M1. Uh, Mary Bachelor would be created if and only if a certain uh, flip fair coin comes up heads. But in this case, the coin comes up tails. Now we have scenario M2, which is the same situation as before, but the coin 
uh, comes up heads. Now, it stands to reason that if the M2 scenario is possible, then so is M1, because the possibility of M1 implies the possibility of M2, since the dispositions of what will occur given the outcome of random experiment are the same in both cases. So that same principle applies to S1 and S2. The dispositions of what will occur given the outcome of random experiment are the same in both cases. Uh, consequently, rationality dictates that S1 is possible and so is S2, and thus uh, that the Eternal Society's annual coin flip tradition was just never possible in the first place if S2 is possible. And like I right, mentioned but- before... Right, but yeah. that's just pre presupposing a contradiction at the very beginning, which I don't see in any of your premises. So yeah, I, I don't see how that critique maps on. And and really, the the only objection, the best objection I can think of, is just to, to deny the first premise. And like I met, but like I mentioned before, surely there's something benefits and suspicious about an infinite past. We control society with abilities more than our humans can actualize a logical contradiction. So that's okay. where I come to. It's like, yeah, an infant past is probably impossible, such that even if I were an atheist, I would still concede that the past is probably finite. I would just say that uh, the, the first cause is something other than God. Uh, but right. that's, that's it's still kind of a serious admission because, I mean, some sort of time-transcending cause outside of space, you know, if space-time has a beginning, uh, then you'd have to appeal to some sort of something outside of space-time to, to create the universe. That's very different from the physics as we know it. So we at least have a sort of de facto supernatural first cause. And if I were an atheist, that would make me a bit uneasy. Right, right. You know, the only other thing that I can think of, but I'm not, I don't think it necessarily works too well, is to say that any sequence like that, if it's going to be infinite, and then we have this 50-50 likelihood, becomes infinitely improbable such that it approaches uh, zero, Therefore, we can't. But the problem is, if you ever say you can't have a sequence, well, then you're saying you can't have a sequence of events. And if you can't have a sequence of events, well, then you can't have an infinite past. So that doesn't work, even if you try to deny that you can have the sequence of flips. Yeah, because any any infinite sequence of coin flips would be like one half to the power of n as n goes to infinity. Any infinite coin flip sequence like that. So it's like saying, well, you can't flip a coin infinitely many times. At which point, the past is impossible. Right. Exactly. Yep. Yep. So, and I think I actually have heard that one in the past, and I didn't like that objection either, um, because that seems to be again conceding the point. All right. What other What other ones? Keep Keep going. We We need more objections. (laughs) I I want a I want a real tough one. Well, I let's see. We consider the uh, attacking the first premise, second premise, and the third premise. I guess really the only one is denying that the that the um, scenario S two is self contradictory, uh, which which doesn't work. I mean, it's clearly obviously contradictory. You can prove it rigorously in small logic. That's really the worst objection I can think of, is to attack that particular premise, attack that it's uh, self contradictory. Right. Um, yeah. But yeah, I think we've gone through and all I the tried. premises. I tried. Yeah, that doesn't seem to. Yeah, I can't seem to. Think of any good way to make it stick. Um, yeah, I like yours of bringing it back to the premises and the logic itself at hand, because you're right that oftentimes you hear um, when these are laid out things that um, don't necessarily relate. And I think you uh, you pointed out well that if it's close enough, people seem to think it's a critique of the argument when it ne- isn't necessarily Um yeah, yeah. All right. A- any more? Any more? <laughs> we we dealt with each one of the premises. Um, I looked through that paper where he had the symbolic logic. I am not the world's most foremost expert in such things, but I think he did an excellent job defining each one of your terms and um, tracking through it. I'm not seeing a problem here. Um, 
So it's certainly interesting problem. Now, you know what? Let me lay one out after saying, you know, the whole thing about uh, oftentimes people don't deal with the premises or the logic. How does this relate to an infinite future? So you're also a Christian. Would you say that we have a actually or an only potentially infinite um, time in heaven or hell in the afterlife? How would this relate in the other direction in time? Uh, well, it wouldn't. I, I have heard like what uh, it's, like, it's like, well, if an infinite past is possible, why isn't an infinite future possible where it's a symmetry breaker? And one obvious symmetry breaker is just to think of Hilbert's hotel um, and, and the infinite past. Each year you create a room, uh, then you'll get Hilbert's hotel. So if the infinite past were possible, it seems like you could get a point in time that has an actual infinite. You can't get that with just a potentially infinite future. So if, if time begins but never ends, there is no point in time where an actual infinite has been traversed. Right. So you would it's be able to get, kind of for example... Keep, and, keep going. It's just an operation of adding an additional year forever. It's not actually a set. Yeah, and that is a very crucial asymmetry. So you you really couldn't get something like that with a, an infinite future. Man, Gotcha. Whew. All right, cool. So, so we're saying that that one doesn't necessarily work either. Um, any more? Any more? Um, so I, I think we've gone through all the premises of the argument. I think we have. Um, I think we, we looked at them. the other critiques. I, I looked, uh, I tried to find some additional critiques online. There are a few. Um, the main one which is brought up is the one from uh, Jimmy Aiken. Uh, which is saying it's implying a first member. Um, but I, th I think he actually had a pretty good answer there. Um, and then the other one, I forget what the critique was, but your addition of the dice, I thought was a really neat thing that that stitched up that nicely. Not, I don't know if there was necessarily a need to, but nevertheless, I think the dice makes very clear that that passing of the information is possible. Uh, yeah, and, and both of those objections, note that they didn't attack any premise of the argument. So right. what, one thing I've learned is that when looking at an objection, ask yourself, does it attack any premise of the argument? If it doesn't, it might be a red herring. Yeah, often. I, I mean, I, you know, I'm inclined to say, yep, definitely smack dab agree. But let's say we could run that argument to, um, to on, on the future. We can't. But if we could, reasons to believe that the, the future is going to keep going. Um, well then, yeah, then I, we would have good reason to look back. So oftentimes looking at counter examples, which run off of the same logic can expose something that you haven't seen in the argument that may be wrong. Um, so that's my only addition, um, to what you said there. Uh, well, I have seen somebody try to make a parallel argument using foreknowledge. Uh, so you could, uh, um... do tell, do tell. <laughs> Uh, but my argument for my objection to that is I don't think foreknowledge actually it's actually possible for that to work that way. I don't think God has simple foreknowledge and the way he's often described. So here's a problem uh, with kind of a simple view of foreknowledge. Uh, it's kind of a, a, a crystal ball paradox I came up with. Uh, suppose a, a person looks at a crystal ball to see what will happen in the future. And okay. if uh, this guy, let's, let's call him uh, Timothy, he says, okay, if Timothy is going to have, I don't want this guy to have a, have a grandchild. So if I look in the future and I see Timothy is, is going to have a grandchild, uh, I'll kill him. Uh, but if he's not going to have a grandchild, I, I won't kill him. I just, I just don't want this guy to have a grandchild. And now suppose <laughs> okay. uh, the world is set up in such a way that if this uh, fortune teller does absolutely nothing, uh, Timothy will have a grandchild. Okay. And now if he looks in his crystal ball and he says, you know, what's going to be in the crystal ball? 
Is, is he going to say, oh, Timothy's going to have a grandchild, so I'll kill him. But if he does that, then Timothy won't have a grandchild. Okay. Now, if if if, if, if uh, Crystal Ball says, but uh, the world is set up in such a way that if this fortune teller does nothing, Timothy will have a grandchild. So we get a contradiction. Okay. So it's very similar to the grandfather paradox when you think about it. Right. So the idea that you can make decisions based on what will happen in the future, I don't think is really possible. What you right. could do is make decisions about what would happen if you do such and such. I agree. That would so, just, I mean, otherwise you're just implying that the future is actual. And I think that most people, most all views of time would say that the future is only potential. So it can't actually ground a truth because it has no ontological status. Yeah. And people like Alex Melpas have, have tried to make a, a kind of a sort of reverse Grimmie for self paradox where uh, stuff happens in the future and God or whoever uh, makes decisions based on what will happen in the future. And, and they try to say, well, look, this is the reason why your gravy of cell argument doesn't work. Well, there's an asymmetry there in that I don't think that sort of foreknowledge is, 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 is possible. And <clears throat> that sort of argument, yep. I would say before, that doesn't really attack any premise of the argument. It's Agreed. sort of a yep. distraction. It, <laughs> if the premise yeah. is true, the conclusion is going to follow, regardless of what else is true. I agree. Yeah, I'm not terribly impressed with that critique either. Yeah, that's just a misunderstanding of the nature of the future and you're treating it like an actual, um, like an actualized set of events, which is not an actualized set of events. Not yet. It's only yeah. a potential. A, a crucial so, asymmetry yeah, with, with the future and the past is the past is in a sense fixed. You can't, you can't change it. Whereas our actions that we take place right now can affect the future. And that's why um, you, you can't. Okay, you just went quiet again on the mic. You there? Ah, he's, I think he's back. Are you back? Back connected or something, I don't know. Oh, there you are. All righty, cool. Um, great. Well, what other, what, what other things? This is cool. I, <laughs> I, I definitely appreciate you bringing all these things up. Um, I, I started digging into uh, this subject um, last Tuesday. So, so a lot of this is new to me. I definitely appreciate you, uh, you walking us through. Um, but yeah, it, it seems like we kind of like start to roll to an end and you're like, actually, there's this other super cool thing. And then you lay it out. So what other super cool things do you have up your sleeve here? I, I, off the top of my head, I guess I can't think of any more that relate to this particular argument. Okay. But time in general, you know, infinitude of the past over... Oh, nothing comes immediately to mind. Okay. All right. Well, cool. Well, I'll tell you what, Wade. Um, that was that was awesome. That was quite the rundown. I appreciate you uh answering all those. You've um greatly increased my certainty of the um arguments for the finitude of the past. I think that's pretty neat. Um, so let's uh let's wrap on up. Um we have a traditional way of ending these podcasts, and it goes like this. If you enjoyed this episode, and if you have friends, and if you like sharing, then why don't you share it with your friends? And if you didn't like this episode, share it with your enemies, and I'll talk to you next time. <laughs>